My text this morning is, again, in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. give attention to the reading of God's word. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried, and being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. I read that passage from the book of Exodus earlier, from Moses and the prophets, because that's what's at issue in this discussion, is the glory of God. The scripture tells us that we're to do all to the glory of God, but we don't really spend a lot of time thinking about what that means. Hebrews tells us that before Christ came into the world, God revealed himself in various ways and in various times to his people through dreams and visions. And so I would like to this morning go briefly back to the book where God first reveals himself to his people. That's the book of Exodus. The theme of Exodus is that they might know the Lord. God led Israel out of bondage with a visible pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. We can't really guess what that have looked like. It would have been spectacular. It was called the glory cloud, the glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord was a visible representation of God's power and God's protection and God's love and God's provision, His goodness. The cloud during the day providing shade. The fire at night providing heat and light. When God went before them, they went. And when God stopped, they stopped. But as we know, the people rebelled against God continually. They wanted a visible reminder of God's presence that they could control. Hence the golden calves. Golden calves are predictable and we carry them. So they're more preferable to a God that we don't control. God in his anger tells Moses that he's going to destroy them all and Moses makes intercession. And then God relents and says, I will not destroy them. I'll bring them into the land and make them a nation, but my presence will not go with them. And Moses again makes intercession. Well, if God's presence isn't going to go with us, what's the point of everything? 
What's the point of security and safety and flocks and herds and orchards and vineyards if we just eat and drink and make merry and then die? And so God again hears Moses and makes provision for the continued presence of the Lord. Much of the book of Exodus then goes on to describing the building of the tabernacle, which 400 years later, 480 years later, would be the pattern of the temple of Solomon. After all the sacrifices are done, after all the rituals are finished, after all the cleansing is done, then that glory of the Lord descended into the temple of God. We see it happening twice, once when Bezalel is done with the temple at the end of the book of Exodus, and the other one when Solomon is finished with the building of the temple in the book of Kings. Going back to the account in Exodus, after God promised that he would not take his presence away, Moses asks to see God's glory. The glory of God, again, is that visible manifestation of who God is. His power, his provision, his love, his protection. It's where God condescends to show himself to mankind. Of course, we know that God's essence is invisible. As God says, no one can see my face and live. Uh, We don't have the capacity to see God as he is in himself. We can only see God as he reveals himself to us. Another term for that is the glory of the Lord. It's God's revelation to us. As it says, God says, I will cause my goodness to pass before you. And then it says he declared to Moses the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord is how God reveals himself to us. When you study theology, the first thing you study is the name of the Lord. Because that's how God reveals himself to us. God hides Moses in the cleft of the rock and the scripture says his goodness passes before him and only a tiny glimpse of the glory of God was seen by Moses. His goodness is how he chose to reveal himself to Moses and to his people. That eternal love and eternal goodness enjoyed by the triune God in all eternity is poured out on mankind. That goodness and love overflows onto our tables, our vineyards, our friendships, our countrysides, our ocean beaches, our mountain passes, the amber waves of grain. It overflows on the rain that falls on the just and the unjust. But we only know about it if the name of the Lord is proclaimed. And so the word of the Lord declares to us the name of the Lord. Jeremiah, writing along that same theme, says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight. The problem is is that rich men, wise men, and mighty men use the gifts that God has given them, their riches, their wisdom, their might, to glorify themselves. The idea is, look at me. Look at how spectacular I am. And Jeremiah says, 
Don't, that's not the purpose of the God's goodness poured out on you. The purpose of God's goodness poured out on you is that you might understand that it is God that is exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. And then that goodness would flow out from you to your neighbors. We see this in a picture. When Moses comes down from the mountain, his face is shining with the goodness of God that was poured out on him. You cannot see the glory of God without it affecting you. Once you see God by faith, everything that you are and everything that you do reflects that knowledge. And that brings us to this day. These were all pictures. God in various ways in various times revealed himself to man. But now he's revealed himself in his son. The Bible teaches us that Jesus was the true spirit of God and the true Israel and the true sacrifice. He was filled fully with God's spirit. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us, John tells us. The old picture of God's presence in the temple is fulfilled in Christ. After the sacrifice on the cross is completed, the blood and the water of the cleansing sacrifice of Christ cleanses his people. And when the sacrifice is presented before God in heaven, Peter tells us in Acts chapter 2, the glory of the Lord fills the church. That's the Holy Spirit poured out upon the church. And so in that sense, we are the temple of God, the people of God, united to Christ by the Holy Spirit. That's a huge theme to fit into one sermon. Jesus in the flesh was the embodied glory of God. He is the express image of God. Everything that God is was reflected in Jesus. The veil was pulled back for a moment and Peter and James and John saw that glory. John says, we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten son of the father, full of grace and truth. But on Pentecost, that glory was poured out on the whole church, on everyone who believes, you and me. This is why Paul calls our bodies the temples of the Holy Ghost. He says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and you are not your own? For you are bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. To glorify God in our bodies and in our spirit is to shine the light of God's goodness that we have freely received to the world around us. We glorify God not to bring glory to ourselves, but that through our glasses of cold water, through our good works, through our words of kindness, we are reflecting God's goodness and wisdom and beauty. This is what it means to be image bearers of God, which was restored to us in Christ. The glory of God was not meant to be seen in the fanciness of the buildings or images of gold and silver and fine things, but in the bodies and souls of those who bear the name of Christ. Which is why we're called Christians, because we're anointed with Christ's anointing. So now let's move on to the chapter and see what this has to do with the rich man and Lazarus. The meaning of the chapter is stewardship. I've already spoken of it. It's going to tie this all together. The chapter begins with Jesus teaching his disciples 
that everything that we have, our money, our wisdom, our wealth, our property, our bodies, is given to us by God in a stewardship, and we're about to be fired. And so we are to use those gifts that God has given us in this world to make for ourselves friends in everlasting life, which we've talked about. So I won't go through that image again. As Jesus is speaking about that, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, the scripture tells us, ridiculed him. Because what they sought was the glory that came from the esteem of men. And therefore, to them, glory was reflected in them through their fine apparel, their rich foods, their delicacies, lots of servants. If you saw the rich man and Lazarus, you would naturally gravitate towards the rich man. Lazarus you would have avoided. You didn't know whether his diseases would be catching or not. This is who the Pharisees were. They loved that which was highly esteemed by men. Jesus describes this rich man as having his habits, his clothing, his lifestyle. Everything that he had was designed to carefully cultivate the image to bring glory to himself. Purple clothes, fine linen, sumptuous dining, everything carefully arranged to make an impression on everyone around him. Here's an important person. Listen to him. Defer to him. Respect him. He knows what's right. Jesus reminds us at the end of this parable that all of those good things this rich man had received, just like the steward at the beginning of the chapter. Everything that he had, which I'm sure he had talents and gifts and abilities and skill, was all given to him by God. So the glory that this rich man was seeking was actually stolen glory. He took the good things that overflowed from the goodness of God and used them to bring glory to himself. That twisted all of these good things and made that which in itself was good into an ugly thing. If the Pharisees had ears to hear, this would have convicted them. They constantly spoke of giving glory to God. In fact, it was one of their vows. Give glory to God. But what they really did was used everything that God had given them to attract glory to themselves. As Jesus said, they loved the best spots in the feasts and they loved the greetings in the marketplaces. And they missed, therefore, the point of everything that God gives us. Since we're all stewards, you can be a good steward or a bad steward. The Pharisees were bad stewards, using the gifts that they had been given, twisting them to bring glory to themselves. True glory, true goodness, overflows from God upon mankind. God created us to bear his image. That is, to reflect that goodness and wisdom and love to everyone around us. Because it is the nature of goodness and love to overflow out. Otherwise, it's just self-love. In the Trinity, the goodness and love of God overabounded in the persons of the Trinity and overflowed in creation when God saw creation and said, Behold, it's very good. And then he created man to reflect that image throughout the world. 
Jesus puts it another way when he says, let your light so shine before men. The goodness of God had a very concrete expression in what this rich man was given. Beautiful garments, fine linen, plenty of food, but not one crumb flowed out of him to anyone else. And so it had twisted and become an ugly thing. God placed the perfect recipient right outside this man's door. And if this rich man had had the tiniest glimpse of the glory of God, his face would have shown in a very practical way in gifts of food and healing and shelter to the man right outside his door. That's the point. Psalm 115 says that we become like the gods that we serve. To the proud Pharisee, their god was an arbitrary, harsh taskmaster who is ready to punish if someone steps out of line. Therefore, all they ever saw was ugliness. All they ever saw was people stepping out of line. All they ever, ever saw was sin and misery and degradation. And they never saw beauty. And because they never saw beauty, they were never able to shine. They would have accepted the idea of compassion, but it would only be compassion on those who deserved it. You could maybe get the compassion of God if you cleaned yourself up first, but they never understood true compassion that flows from God. God says, I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It's a free gift of God. It's not earned. It's not deserved. And we don't clean ourselves up first and then receive compassion. For then God would have said, I will have compassion on who I deem is worthy, on who cleans themselves up the best. Because my compassion is limited. I'm not going to pour it out on just everybody. But God didn't say that. He said, I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But to the Pharisee, God gave his gifts to the deserving, to those who cleaned themselves up, to those who properly repented. And he took gifts away from those who were undeserving. And so it would naturally follow if this guy is rotting away with sores, unable to work and starving to death, it's God's will. God is sovereign after all. Therefore, he must have deserved it somehow. It's the continual mistake that we read made by Job's friends in the book of Job. If you are suffering, you've done something to offend God. And who am I to give you a pass? How is he going to learn his lesson if I keep bailing him out? But even the dogs took compassion on the beggar. The dogs in their action rebuke all the humans around and brought some measure of comfort when all of mankind had failed. The dogs were more capable of reflecting the image of God there than any human around. That was an indictment on the humans. Compassion falls in the street and the only thing left is cruelty, rage, oppression, abuse, judgment. You reflect the God you serve. The glory of God passed by Moses and God declared to him the name of the Lord in a very short sermon. 
I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. God's sovereignty, God's good pleasure is that his goodness and love would overflow with compassion and mercy on the undeserving simply because of the nature and the good pleasure of God. But if you serve the God of the harsh taskmaster who's just waiting for mankind to screw up, you will reflect the God of the harsh taskmaster and from you will flow condemnation and ridicule and cruelty. Ultimately, you would rather watch the beggar starve than watch him steal from you what's rightfully yours. That if you serve Jehovah, the God of mercy, you will, your face will shine with quite a different light. It's a light that looks like light rather than darkness. The gifts that have overflowed from God to you will overflow from you to everyone God has placed in your life. What do you reflect to your spouse, to your children, to your friends, to your co-workers, to your boss, to the people you come in contact with in the stores and in the restaurants? Do you reflect a God of compassion, mercy, kindness, love, and goodness? Or do you reflect the God of the Baals? If you screw up, you deserve my wrath. We're like our gods. What we worship is seen by how we act. It's very concerning today to see so many who proclaim the name of Christ that have not one ounce of compassion or mercy or tenderness. They ridicule all of those as the feminization of the church. And it makes me wonder what God they serve. When compassion and mercy and pity are ridiculed, a man's heart is revealed. We serve a God of compassion who seeks to gather his children together as a hen gathers her chicks. So this is why Paul says, nor did we seek glory for men, either from you or for others, that we might have made, uh, we might have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. This is Paul the Apostle claiming what he even says is a feminine characteristic of compassion and gentleness. Don't let our weird views of gender roles drive us away from compassion and mercy and tenderness. When we seek glory from men, we steal the gifts that God has given us, whatever they are, and we twist them into ugliness. For those gifts are not given to us that we might usurp God's place and seek glory for ourselves, but that our faces might shine as his face shone on us. So we come to the end result of it. The rich man in seeking his own glory didn't get ultimately what he sought. He was buried, we can presume with honors, probably with many great speeches with all the good that he has done conveniently ignoring the beggars that died outside his gate. The rich man feared insignificance, failure, ridicule. He feared above all being a loser. He coveted all the things of the earth that he thought would bring him honor and glory and would make him a winner. But instead he ended in torment without even a name. As Proverbs says, the fear of the wicked will come upon him. 
And notice that even in hell, his character did not change. He still lived in hell as if he were entitled to Lazarus's service. He didn't even talk to Lazarus. He said, Abraham, send Lazarus to bring me some water. And then Abraham, send Lazarus back to my brothers as if Lazarus was still his lackey. But not even a resurrection from the dead will turn a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. We don't know why Jesus chose the name Lazarus for this parable. We know that it is the Greek form of the Hebrew word Eleazar, which means God is our help. But is Jesus foreshadowing what he will do to his friend Lazarus when he raises him from the dead? Because he did at one point raise his friend with the same name, Lazarus, from the dead. But instead of believing the Pharisees, you remember what they did? They plotted the death of both Jesus and Lazarus. Neither will they believe if one rises from the dead. If they don't believe Moses and the prophets. Here is a hidden rebuke. You didn't believe Moses and the prophets. You're not going to believe someone rising from the dead. They would not give up their place or their nation, John tells us in chapter 11. They would rather die in misery than view the shining face of God's compassion. This isn't about doing better and working harder. It's about removing the veil and becoming who God has created us to be in Christ. There's only one way, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, only in Christ is the veil taken away. I'd like to read a few verses from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning at verse 12. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull. For to this day the same veil remains when the Old Covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, the veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces... Contemplate the Lord's glory and are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Do you understand what he's saying? The goodness of God has declared to us in the preaching of the word. We behold with an unveiled face the glory of God so that we will be transformed to that same glory and that will reflect out from us and our lights will shine to the world around us, which is very simple. Don't let the beggar starve outside your gate. What the rich man needed was to turn to the Lord and have the veil taken away. Then his life would have overflowed with praise and mercy and compassion and love. But he persisted in his hardness of heart, and soon it was too late. And his hardness and his torment continue for eternity. The fear of the wicked will come upon him. But the proverb also says the desire of the righteous will be granted. We know that what Lazarus desired was to be fed from the crumbs that dropped from the rich man's table. He just wanted peace in his body. And his end is resting 
in the bosom of Abraham. An Old Testament phrase. Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation. Resting in his bosom is a very intimate expression. The bosom is the chest. It's someone leaning on the chest of Abraham, resting. It's a place of honor. We don't read of anything that Lazarus received on the earth. We can assume that he believed and trusted in the promises of God, but that's not the emphasis of Jesus' story. Jesus' emphasis is though Lazarus did not have any good things on this earth, God's goodness has not failed. God's goodness was stored up for him in the next world. The assumption is that Lazarus used what he had to make friends for himself in the world to come as the beginning of the chapter tells us. When we come to his story in Luke, he's dying outside the rich man's house. We don't know the rest of his story. But he is Lazarus. God is my helper. And as was his name, so was he. Pain and turmoil, but he waited. For it was all he could do. But it says the day came when the angels visited him. Lazarus, seemingly alone and abandoned and forgotten in life, was never alone, not even when he died. The rich man was buried in honor, but alone in hell. Lazarus, they forgot to bury him, gave him no honor, but the angels flew him to his rest. Resting in the bosom of Abraham, the Jews would have understood the reference He was a true seed of Abraham, a true child of promise, and welcomed into the same home that Abraham was in. And as Paul tells us, that veil can only be lifted in Christ. For Christ alone is the obedient, only obedient, true son of Abraham, the son of God. He's the son that Abraham rejoiced to see. He's the son that Abraham worshipped and longed for. He's the express image of God, the true pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. He's the rock that followed them in the wilderness. And when he takes the veil away, our faces also shine. And our prayer should be that the goodness and beauty and faithfulness of Jesus will shine in all that we do. That all of our words and all of our works may reflect the nature of God. His goodness and his beauty. God's goodness never fails. Whether we've been given much or whether we've been given nothing, God's goodness never fails. And all of our works and all of our words should reflect that to the world around us. For we are temples of the Holy Ghost. Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let's do good to all especially to those who are of the household of faith. You see the shining of God's goodness that flows from us? That's the point. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit so that our lives might shine with all of that beauty and goodness and love and joy that the world is thirsty for. May they see that reflecting in us so that they might know that we serve the true and living God and not a dead idol. We pray that you would give us this grace in Jesus' name. Amen.